Boop. And it is our Saturday Coffee Clots. Welcome back this Saturday morning. It's so good to have you uh, with Heather Lofthouse, who is also, in her spare time, Executive Director of Inequality Media Civic Action. When I'm not clutching. When you're not having a clutch. Uh, but uh, And this is good coffee, Heather. It's delicious. Really good coffee. This is my third cup. Because this morning, uh, no, yesterday morning, actually, I've been having, I don't even know what day it is. Yesterday morning at 4.30 p.m., I, I was on, uh, I was on, what was I on? I was on public radio. A.M. 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 Oh, that's right. It was yeah. A.M. Well, it was dark. Um, talking We're doing about great. We're doing great with the timing. <laughs> talking about the economy. And I still have not quite got back to my current time zone. Uh, but... Uh, it's been a it's been an interesting week, no right? I mean, things have happened. Interesting is an understatement. Donald Trump hit us with it. Hit us with it. Well, I mean, I was actually quite moved by uh, his arraignment. Now, I've never been moved by an arraignment. You, you understand? I mean, I don't want to be a, a kind of uh, a typical um, doing a kind of male explaining. Uh, but I was a lawyer. I am a lawyer. And an arraignment is just like an arrest. An arraignment is an arrest. Uh, and he showed up. Mr. Trump goes to Washington and he showed up for his arrest. Uh, and I was, you know, to tell you the truth, Heather, I was kind of moved by it. I mean, we this is the rule of law. And this is the man who essentially, we all know, we witnessed, it was out in plain sight, uh, tried to overturn the result of the 2020 election. Uh, and uh, here was a magistrate, uh, a woman, uh, a woman born in India, uh, who is saying, calling him Mr. Trump, not President Trump, uh, certainly not Your Excellency. Mm -mm. I mean, he, you know, with George Washington, they wanted to call it George Washington, Your Excellency. And he said, no, no, I'm not, I don't want any trappings. So here is Mr. Trump, which apparently irked him enormously, uh, according to a CNN reporter. Good. Good. <laughs> but you see, this is this is all part of the rule of law. We, there, there is nobody above the law, even Mr. Trump. Right. And I think part of it is here that the Constitution doesn't give immunities to former government officials. Right. He is out. He is out now. That's right. I mean, under the rule of law, nobody gets any special treatment, can be uh, can violate the law with impunity. Uh, I mean, it's all about accountability. It's an accountability of everybody. What the judge, the magistrate judge, said to Donald Trump on Thursday uh, could have been said or would have been said and has been said to anybody who is alleged to have violated a criminal statute. Uh, they come before a judge magistrate uh, and they are called if they are, you know, depending upon their gender. Uh, and, you know, they, they, are, they are just treated as normal people. And this is a standard, a, a kind of a standard set of questions uh, given to him. He was, he was read his rights. He was then uh, told the charges against him. Uh, how do you plead? He said, not guilty, your honor. Um, he was in, a, in effect bowing down before the rule of law which uh, I don't know about you, Heather. I, I did. Maybe I'm just an old cornball. I'm a Frank Capra cornball. I did find it very moving. <laughs> I did too, because, you know, there's accountability of some sort, and I don't know if it'll last, and I don't know how far it'll go, but I'm praying. 
But really, I think so, too. I mean, he had to show up. You know, he was livid. How many times are we going to see him on his plane flying to various and sundry magistrates, you know? There are going to be a lot of uh, of, of indi- several indictments uh, in addition to the indictments that have already come down. Uh, certainly, Georgia is already preparing an indictment. And one thing that's interesting is he, you know, his defense is going to be to try to delay his trials, all of them, until after the election, uh, on the theory that uh, if he can make the election all about being prosecuted and persecuted by the so-called deep state, then he can, uh, as a chance maybe of even being elected president and pardoning himself, uh, pardon me, pardon me, yeah, he will say. But he also has a chance of, uh, uh, of even if Biden is elected, maybe forcing Biden's hand. If one third of the country feels that 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 Trump was was railroaded somehow, maybe Biden will be pressured into pardoning Trump the way Gerald Ford uh, felt pressured into pardoning Richard Nixon. Oof. I think that's the strategy. I can't believe that would happen. Well, I I can't either. Although uh, I keep hearing. Uh, various people, you know, who know people in the White House and because I know people who know people in the White House saying that uh, certainly this question, does Biden pardon Trump, you know, after Biden is reelected is is a question that has been brought up. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, I think it would be a terrible mistake to pardon him. Uh, but it's interesting that we're even even talking about it or that anybody is talking about it. Yeah, it's so interesting. I don't really, I can't even fathom that. But I mean, in that same world, Biden's president. So I like some of this picture we're painting. <laughs> Biden's been reelected. He's still alive. He's thriving. I'm loving this. I think the chances of Biden being reelected are really relatively high. You know, the, the biggest concern I hear uh, from independents around the country is frankly, his age uh, and whether he can do it. Uh, But beyond that, the economy is in terrific shape. Uh, You've got Trump uh, with indictment after indictment and the paranoia and conspiracy theories. Uh, I think were it not for concerns about his age, uh, Biden would be a shoo-in. Right. I'm thinking the same. A lot of people are. Can we talk about the indictment itself? We had, I heard it on NPR today. I heard Rachel Maddow reading it. Was there anything in it that stood out to you? And then, I don't know, what, what, what's your sense of the actual, as you said, you're a lawyer, paperwork? Uh, well, there was nothing that was particularly surprising, uh, but I, I was struck uh, by this one charge having to do with a conversation that occurred allegedly uh, between uh, the fellow who is, was Trump's mole in the Justice Department named Clark. Uh, and uh, and also one of Trump's assistants, uh, and and the issue was whether to invoke uh, the Act of Congress, which was actually not ever a formal Act of Congress, but it was several statutes that enabled a president to declare a kind of martial law. Uh, right. You know the fact that this was even considered that it was even part and is being is being part of the conspiracy is named as part of the conspiracy, uh, is quite extraordinary. Right. That was Jeffrey Clark, and he was one of the six co-conspirators. I'm assuming Ginny Thomas isn't one of the six? We don't know. 
Uh, and none of the, we don't know, the, one of the, none of the conspirators have been named. I mean, everybody is assuming uh, that uh, Clark is one of the uh, conspirators, uh, that also uh, our old friend Rudy, Rudy Giuliani uh, is one of the conspirators. In fact, uh, the Giuliani conspirator, or the person who is assumed to be the Giuliani conspirator, is named 40 times in the indictment. Yeah. He's likely to be indicted himself, but we don't know. Again, the special counsel, Jack Smith, is holding this very close to his chest. And the grand jury, again, a group of normal citizens. This uh, We've got to make sure, and we've got to make sure that we state it over and over, and that the, um, that the press has, to, has this right, uh, is that Joe Biden is not indicting Donald Trump. Uh, Joe Biden's uh, Justice Department has not indicted Donald, Donald Trump. Uh, citizens, a group of citizens that comprised a, dra- a grand jury, uh, they indicted Donald Trump. Yeah, uh, This is what the rule of law is all about. Yeah, but they're so good at rebranding everything, you know. Biden's corrupt GOJ. I mean, it really is just like one liner after, you know, research term after research term. So in terms of what we're paying attention to, August 28 is going to be huge. Judge Chutkin, who we're very excited about, I mean, just as given her history and given her, I don't know, rational sense of the law, God forbid. So she's going to come out and we'll learn when the trial is, right? On August 28th, yeah. that's going to be... Well, that's that's a big deal. That hearing on the 28th is going to establish the the trial but again i want to i want to make sure everybody kind of uh, puts on their seatbelts uh, because uh, this trial <laughs> the, the the it's going to be the delay 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 motions to delay um, and i would predict that the biggest motion to delay coming out of the trump camp uh, from the trump lawyers is going to be it's impossible for trump to get a fair trial because he is the leading republican candidate for president and you cannot have a fair trial of somebody who is the leading republican candidate uh, it's just not possible and this is it's it's a plausible argument i hope it doesn't get any traction i doubt the district court judge is going to is going to go along with it but it could be appealed to the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, and then up to the Supreme Court. So just be prepared for this. And I bet he's praying for that. I mean, the Supreme Court, his buddies. If I were betting, and I hate even to say this because I don't want to deflate anybody, if I were betting, I would say that this Supreme Court, understanding where it has been, how it has functioned, this Supreme Court would probably go along with that kind of motion and stay the trial until after the election. Uh, but uh, am I sure about this? No. I think there's, there's maybe a 51%, 52% chance that those six um, Trump appointees, and they're not going to recuse themselves, obviously. They don't recuse themselves. Right. Can you imagine Clarence Thomas recusing himself? Finally? I mean, God, that would be fabulous. <laughs> Okay, so we need to talk about the labor market. Yesterday, jobs numbers came out, 187,000 new jobs, many of which were in the healthcare industry. What is the verdict? What do you think? Soft landings, tell us. Well, it is going to be. I I think it's almost certainly going to be a so-called soft landing, a kind of Goldilocks situation. I I would not have said that um, a couple of months ago because the Fed has been raising interest rates 11 times now. Uh, in a very short period of time, within the last 18 months, uh, very rarely. I mean, look what happened in the early 1980s when Paul Volcker raised interest rates 
uh, this much this fast. Uh, you had a, a very deep recession. Uh, the conventional wisdom among economists is that you raise interest rates like this, you get a recession. What is pushing against a recession and offsetting the chance of recession is really all of the spending, the stimulus spending, uh, that has uh, occurred under the Biden administration. We're talking about infrastructure and uh, the CHIPS Act, the you know, uh, microprocessors and microelectronics. Uh, we're talking about uh, manufacturing, uh, wind and solar and, and all kinds of things. Uh, this is a, a lot of money. This is big, 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 big investment. And so that um, you are likely to, uh, in fact, it looks like uh, that the headwind created by the Fed in terms of raising interest rates is being offset by a tailwind of all of this stimulus, all of this money coming into the economy. And so the combination is likely to lead to, believe it or not, a soft landing. And that's uh, really not only is it important in and of itself, but all of these investments in high technology in roads and bridges and, and internet and everything else and, and wind and solar. All these investments are incredibly important for the future. Uh, manufacturing employment is going up. We haven't seen that in years. Uh, and the jobs report, uh, I wasn't concerned about it. I mean, uh, I had predicted, many people had predicted about 200,000 new jobs, didn't quite make that. Unemployment rate is still very, very low. And you have a lot of workers still with a lot of bargaining power, which is terrific. Right, right. And wages were slightly up, 4% or something like that. Now, can you talk about the fact that Fitch, creditor, credit dubber, stripped us of our AAA status in part, large part, because of the dysfunction we see in D.C. around the debt discussions and everything else. What does that mean? Well, you know, I was surprised. I don't know about you, Heather. I was surprised. Uh, I follow the credit rating agencies, you know, fairly closely. Uh, Fitch is not one of the major ones, but it is very well respected. And if there was ever going to be a credit downgrade, I would have expected it to occur uh, just before the, the fight over the debt ceiling or when it looked like the fight over the debt ceiling was not turning out well. But for Fitch to now sort of arbitrarily come out with this, which is gonna cost us, you and me and our fellow citizens, billions of dollars, uh, I just think is kind of silly uh, and um, doesn't speak well for Fitch as a credit rating agency. And by the way, don't get me started on credit rating agencies. I mean, after what happened in 2008, you know, the fact that we are even paying attention uh, and that anybody gives them any credence uh, is, uh, is is amazing to me. I know. We don't, they did, remember, they, they let the banks get away with it. I know. Um, I know. I also don't like it just for in terms of people's personal economics and the personal economy. I mean, I don't think any, for me, for example, I don't think it affects my daily, day-to-day, -day, you know, that we're two A's rather than three A's. We've lost an A. But I think it's still, it's, it builds fear and the fear and the, you know, you mentioned this the other day, yesterday on NPR, but I think the, the trauma of the pandemic, I don't like any of the things that are kind of adding to the stress load of people around economics. And this is not helpful. I think that's, that's exactly right. And uh, people wonder, a lot of journalists and others wonder, well, you know, and people who are watching politics wonder, well, why isn't Biden getting credit for this wonderful economy? 
if unemployment is low and consumer confidence is coming back and uh, the economy is growing and we have a soft landing and inflation is way down, why isn't Biden doing better? And I think the answer is that we, so many people are still uh, traumatized by the recession, you know, the deep recession just after the pandemic started, uh, the inflation at the end of the pandemic, uh, the kind of economic uncertainty. And don't forget, you've got uh, on top of all of this, you've got a nation that is very bitterly divided politically uh, with uh, social media from uh, the right wing, uh, using social media to say to spread well, a lot of lies about the economy and about uh, how bad things actually are. Uh, well, the combination is very unsettling. And so um, I, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic that over the next three or four or five months, uh, most Americans begin to understand how good the economy is. Uh, but um, th that's certainly not a sure thing. Right. One thing I saw that was interesting, and it was I think I saw two articles, and I'll take them, was talking about women in the workforce, God forbid, and the importance of childcare, and that we're about to hit a childcare cliff in terms of you know what was supported during the pandemic, um, and this statistic that 86% of working age men are employed compared to 75% of working age women, and that's for many reasons, but the bulk of them is a lack of affordable child care or the lack of child care at all and that there's room for optimization right there's room for women who want to to come into the workforce but we've got to make that possible in terms of child care which other countries do absolutely i think this is going to be a big issue i hope it's an issue during the election uh, you know the biden administration tried to get uh, affordable child care into the law, yep. And Joe Manchin uh, and Kirsten Cinema and every other every every other Republican, other Republican. was against them. <laughs> yes, and uh, but I think the child care is a big deal, and the labor participation data we are getting, as you referred to, uh, is very interesting because we have almost record levels of labor participation among men, among working age men. Uh, and uh, the question that should be on everybody's mind is, well, a lot of women want to work. They want to come into the workforce, but obviously uh, it doesn't make sense for them to do so if they don't have affordable childcare. So what are we going to do about it? Right. Um, so when I'm not having coffee with you, actually you, I have coffee with you vis-a-vis -vis your Substack. This week you wrote something, I can't remember which day it was now, about Elon Musk and how he is treating hate speech on his fabulously new renamed platform, X, formerly known as Twitter. Will you tell us more about what you're seeing and thinking and also describe slap lawsuits to us? Uh, oh, yes, by the way, X, I, I just find that the worst <laughs> possible. I, I mean, I'm, I, I'm embarrassed to be participating and using Twitter, which is now X. I mean, it just, it's, it just, it feels, whether it's X-rated, you know, kind of, uh, yeah. uh, kind of morally wrong, or it's, or it has shades of authoritarianism. I mean, what in the world is yeah. Musk doing? And talk about, I mean, talk about just arbitrariness. I mean, but, just yeah. his capacity to just say, okay, from now on, everybody's going to use my right. X label. 
Right. But I do think we don't want to go off of the platform because that means that there's even more hate speech, right? The percentage of people, NPR is off of it. I mean, I think more will be revealed, but I think it's hard to just jump off that platform. It leaves a void and I worry about it in terms of responsibility, even though I hate the platform. Well, I, I'm really hoping that um, six months from now, let's say, uh, very few people are on it. Uh, I think that we are, I mean, inequality media uh, and I, I mean, we're all trying to move uh, to other platforms, and I think we ought to continue that. But back to your question, uh, and what I wrote about this week is that uh, Musk uh, is threatening a lawsuit against a group, a nonprofit called the Center for Countering Digital Hate. Uh, and what really worries me about this lawsuit, and this is this is a, a lawsuit, uh, something like uh, you know Greenpeace and other nonprofits uh, have been threatened by lawsuits or actually litigated against by big corporations with deep pockets uh, in an effort to silence them, to intimidate them. I mean, who is in their right mind is going to actually uh, have a major lawsuit? Uh, against Elon Musk. I mean, Musk has it in his power. This is one of the problems of our system, given that the wealthy are so wealthy, billionaires can mount these lawsuits, even if they're frivolous lawsuits, it doesn't matter. Uh, and that's what the, uh, you know, this uh, the slap lawsuit uh, concern is all about. Uh, and uh, if what, he, what, what, what Musk is doing is sending a signal where he's trying to send a, a signal to all of the groups that are monitoring what had been Twitter, Twitter X, for hate speech. And he's saying, in effect, just don't monitor and don't, you have no right to do this. And if you do, I'm going to sue you and it's going to cost you a fortune to defend yourself. Uh, well, what does that mean? It means that um, he's trying to silence a lot of people who are trying to make him responsible, uh, to hold him accountable for the hate speech on Twitter, X. Yep. And I think your point about this being the behavior of a bully, I mean, you continue to say that, and it's so true. This is a really a kind of a generalizable point. I mean, we are living in an age where people of great wealth and great power, and power and wealth go together, uh, are doing a lot of bullying. They're pushing, forcing, intimidating. Uh, they are making life difficult for a lot of people. Uh, it is very, very closely aligned and similar to what happened uh, 100, 120 years ago in the first Gilded Age, when you had uh, the so-called captains of industry uh, who were really uh, doing a great deal of similar kind of bullying, using their wealth and power to intimidate uh, legislators and average working people. And, um, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but as the old saying goes, it does echo. And we are seeing an echo today. Right. And I do have to do a shameless plug for a new video that is in the final stages of post-production that is on the Gilded Age that Inequality Media will be putting out. Perhaps we'll add it to a Coffee Clutch Substack post. But I'm excited for that. Well, that's good. I, I think we should. I, I, it's a big, big and important theme. And uh, we need to pay attention to the parallels between the Gilded Age, the first Gilded Age, and now the second one that we are in right now. Um, Heather, it's it, it's just lovely seeing you. And you. And uh, I don't want to bring our coffee clutch to an abrupt halt, but um, we are getting to the point where 
we have to say goodbye. And I uh, hope you have a wonderful week. I will see you probably before then, but everybody who is listening to us, hope you have a great week as well. Here, here. Thank you. Take care.